You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. If you could indulge me for a moment, remain standing. Um, We have Redemption Hill kids today. Um, We have two classes, ages 2 to 4 and then 5 to 9. But before that, I want to share with you uh, what the kids in the uh, the 5 to 9 category are going to be learning. We're going to start going through the New City Catechism. Uh, Many of you who were part of the church at the very beginning received this from me. Uh, We're going to use this as a great tool. It's a great resource to catechize our our children. And so I'm going to read what they'll be learning today. They're going to answer a particular question. And I'm going to have you respond, and it's going to be on the screen here. There's the question. The the response isn't specifically from the New City Catechism. It's from our own confession of faith. We are a confessional church, and if you've gone to our website and you go to the confession of faith tab, it's a little different than a lot of churches. We have depth in our theology. It is also wide in terms of the topics that we lay out. Um, That is a confession of faith. And so, parents of kids, you know now what your children, specifically those who are five to nine, will be learning today in their Redemption Hill Kids class. So I'm going to read the question, and then together let's read the answer. What sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Together, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, is the true and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Amen. Kids, you are dismissed. Mr. Aaron's right over there, and you may be seated. For any of the kiddos that are still in or the older kids, we, deal, we do have sermon notes as well. They're in the hallway in addition to those totes, so if that serves you, you may grab those now as well. Uh, as you know, uh, we are in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which means we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 9, for a couple of months. Uh, we'll, make, well, there'll be a few breaks along the way, but you can put your, your bookmark <laughs> right there. Um, we'll be living there for a while. As I reviewed excuse me, the Sermon on the Mount this week, this thought came to mind. If Jesus were physically present with us this morning, how would you think the culture would receive him after preaching the Sermon on the Mount? Right? It's just kind of like a thought experiment that kind of popped in my head. Um on the one hand, you know, it, we read the Bible, and it's an ancient document, right? It is our sacred scripture. And we read the words of Christ, and we're like, oh, okay. And even if you disagree with it, you're like, you're okay. But it's a lot different. In fact, Jesus was right here preaching to 21st century Americans the Sermon on the Mount. How do you think he would be received? Here's what I surmise. Jesus would be labeled a radical religious freak. I mean, he was labeled that in the first century. I don't think that's going to change. 
he would be called a bigot and narrow-minded. Twitter would lose its everlasting mind because of the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, I mean, if you're in the social media world, here's what they call it. He could get ratioed. <laughs> There'd be so much that people want to say to Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seemingly touches on all the cultural buttons and also all the buttons that like, we think about in our lives, right? Conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, and people who believe in all kinds of ideologies would like to try to cancel Jesus. Why? Jesus challenges the logic of his own day and our day. Jesus offers an alternative way to live in distinction from the kingdom of the world. Today's passage is no exception. When have you ever heard someone other than Jesus say, the way you flourish in life, the way you receive true blessing involves mourning and grieving? I mean, when's the last time you heard that from a pastor? So why does Jesus highlight mourning and grieving and weeping? My sermon attempts to answer the question, but I want to begin by pointing out the obvious. Jesus knows that we live in a broken and sinful world. So he's preaching that. He's not naive. As a matter of fact, that's informing his sermon. He sees a ton of brokenness. He sees the sin of humanity. Jesus knows that you have experienced the consequences of sin and brokenness. Like, Jesus is speaking right to you this morning. He knows. And so, Jesus wants to help you make sense of the tears. He wants to help you make sense of the pain. Jesus wants to help you mourn and grieve well when life goes sideways. Because it's in your mourning and your grieving and your weeping in which Jesus provides comfort. So I'm going to pray briefly, ask for God's help. And we're going to look at this beautiful beatitude from Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is good for us to look at this singular verse this morning, and I do pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would minister to all of our hearts, wherever we're at, however we come to church this morning. We want to entrust our heart and our very lives to you and ask that you come and minister by the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to let you into my mind for a moment, my pastoral mind. I have like many goals as your pastor, many goals. Here are a few. Number one, I always want to try to point you to Jesus. Don't want you to, I don't want to point you to me. I want to point you to Jesus. Uh, for example, I never want you to walk away and say, what a great sermon, if you never saw Christ. 
if that were the case, I did not preach a quality sermon or a faithful sermon. So I make it my personal ambition to point you to Christ. Here's another pastoral goal. Uh, I want to protect you spiritually, right? That's the, one of the jobs of a pastor, to protect you spiritually. I'm a shepherd over sheep, but in this world there are wolves. There's false teachers, right? And it's my duty, my joyful duty as a shepherd to protect you from those wolves. There's one more goal, and this particular goal fits into today's theme. I always want to try to help you to see what it means to live for God and God alone. No one else. Jesus did not come into the world and then suffer and die for you to continue to live in the ways and rhythms and the principles of the world. Jesus came and died to set you free from that. And as I've been saying in this sermon series, God calls you and frees you to live distinctly for him in this world. Like that's one of the main challenges with the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus gets to your heart, I want you to live different. God calls you to live distinctly when you're at home, when you're at work, kids, when you're at school. when you're hanging out with the neighbors, and when you go to the grocery store. And the way you live distinctly for God is to shape your heart and your mind to the shape of Christ. We are a people who are unashamed. We are a people who are unashamed about conforming into the likeness and image of Christ. So to achieve this goal, there might not be a better section of Scripture to read and meditate on than the Sermon on the Mount. As it pertains to this morning, we will see why mourning and grieving help shape your heart. Like, when you mourn and grieve over tragedy, it's not a wasted moment. It's not. God is there. God is at work. He's at work in the pain, in the suffering. I say it this way, that mourning and grieving help shape your heart. I say it this way because of a question that I'll need to answer, and here it is. What kind of mourning and grieving is blessed? Right? That's how the beatitude begins, blessed are you who mourn. And I can tweak my inquiry just a little, a little, a little bit with verse 4 in view, with the latter part of the verse. What sort of mourning receives comfort from God? How do mourning and grieving actually draw you closer to Christ? And it's a really important question because when people go through pain and suffering, as a pastor, I've seen it go one of two ways. It leads them right into the arms of Christ or it leads them away from Christ. So it's actually an important question. I've been thinking about this question because people mourn for different reasons. Allow me to be raw for a moment. On Monday morning, I attended the funeral of Aria Lane Arrington. And I got permission to share this. After the funeral ceremony, I waited in the lobby for Rob. When we saw each other, I hugged him. Probably the biggest hug we've ever given each other. 
And I looked him in the eye and I said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now here's the question on my mind. Was I justified in using Matthew 5, 4 to minister to him in that situation? Like I said, there's many types of mourning in this world. Did Jesus have in mind those mourning because of loss of life when he preached the Sermon on the Mount? Based upon uh, what we read about mourning and grieving in Holy Scripture, there, there actually could be several answers. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he leaves mourning relatively undefined, kind of open-ended. We know that contained in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just does not tell us what he has in mind when it comes to mourning. However, Scripture helps us to make sense about what Jesus is saying. And that's what we want to discover. So before teasing out what mourning means, what mourn means, we need to remember that verse 4 comes off the heels of verse 3, right? One of the principal points, principal points I made last week about being poor in spirit is that you need to approach God completely empty. Like if you want God to pour into you with his comfort, we come to him. We say, I got nothing to offer you, God. And you realize he has everything to offer you. You approach God just like destitute, empty, knowing he supplies everything you need. you got to get your mind around verse 3 before you can get your mind around verse 4. Now, you might see how the first and second beatitude is connected. These beatitudes are about the condition of the soul. John Calvin says, for if we are poor in spirit, we cannot avoid weeping. We cannot... Be other than distressed, he says. Now, I've obviously parsed out these two beatitudes, but it's not uncommon to hear these two beatitudes actually preached together because of how closely related they are to one another. There's one more point I need to make before looking directly at verse 4. Verse 4 calls out a paradox. <clears throat> Indeed, Christians must be comfortable with paradoxes. When you read verse 4, for some people, the initial impulse is not to expect that you are blessed if you are mourn, if you mourn, right? Like, how is that even possible? You might expect the opposite. We could hear, we especially hear this in our culture. Blessed are you who do not mourn. And life is all good. Blessed are you who are happy and have no need for comfort, right? I mean, that, that's a little bit, I mean, kind of like a going on a rabbit trail here, but that's the, that's the prosper, prosperity gospel message. It's all good. Jesus is going to bless you, and it surely won't be through pain, suffering, grieving, and mourning. That's the message of the prosperity gospel. That is not what Jesus says. The kingdom of this world correlates happiness with blessedness. It correlates happiness with the good life. But Jesus says the opposite. Blessed are you when you mourn. No, living in the kingdom of heaven is in a sense upside down from the kingdom of this world. Living in the kingdom of heaven requires learning another kind of logic. And as we discipline ourselves to learn about God's logic, we will see fruit. We will see what God gives. And as we look at the reasons why the people of God mourn. We'll see how God comforts. And I think anytime God breaks into your life to provide comfort, you are blessed. 
I've, I've posed this question to people before who've gone through seasons of hardship and they've come out of it. If you drew closer to Christ because of your grieving and suffering, was it worth it? And I hope the answer is always yes for you. In general, all people mourn and weep. Christian, non-Christian. Even the most emotionless people in this world mourn and weep. It might not be clear on the outside, but internally, there's stuff going on. There's pain. And I said during our sermon, I said this during our sermon series on suffering that all people suffer. If you've not suffered, just wait. It's coming. And of course, pain and suffering lead to mourning, grieving, and weeping. Mourning, weeping, and grieving are a response to the pain and suffering. In this life, tears are inescapable, and Jesus knows your tears are inevitable. But we must not be fooled to think that all people who mourn are blessed. A person who murders another person and then mourns over the prison sentence is not blessed. A person who steals from the cash register at work and then gets caught and then mourns over getting fired is not blessed and will not be comforted by God. God does not promise to comfort everyone who mourns for every reason. We do not serve a cold God, but God does not bless unrepented sin. Here's the reaction to sin in the kingdom of the world, right? Oh, man, I got caught. And now I'm going to mourn. I'm going to throw myself a pity party. Here's the deal. For the people of God, there are no pity parties in the kingdom of heaven. None. And here's the warning for Christians. Do not look to the world for how you should mourn. Whether your, pain, whether your pain and suffering is self-induced or you find yourself in unfortunate circumstances, do not look to the world to process how to grieve and mourn. I mean, before moving on, I just got to say this. I'm concerned that the first impulse of many Christians is to look to the world to find comfort in their mourning. It is as if Christ has nothing to offer and it's time to find something else. Like, I've tried this thing, so I'm going to go over here. I mean, I could stand up here for the next 30 minutes and give 30 different examples about how Christians have pursued finding comfort in the midst of their mourning that is not Christ. But then I won't get to the most important parts of the sermon, so I won't do that. But I do want to convince you that when you mourn, your first instinct is to look to Christ. We should take heart these words from Jesus. It's from the Gospel of Matthew. He says, come to me. Are you mourning this morning? This is what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. You will find fleeting rest from the world. If you go there. But you go to Jesus. He will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Like that's the instinct we should have in the midst of mourning and grieving. That's the kind of comfort that Christ provides. And here's the next verse. If anyone thirsts, are you thirsty this morning? Spiritually speaking. 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So in pain, in tears, Jesus is your greatest source of comfort. It is Christ. Jesus is your comfort. So what kind of morning does the Lord bless and comfort? I've already mentioned what he does not bless. What does he bless and comfort? I want to propose four categories in which God blesses someone's morning. Now, these categories are in no way perfect, but they are my attempt to help us think biblically about when mourning is appropriate and God indeed blesses it and brings comfort. Just four simple categories. There is a sense that God blesses the mourning of our personal sin, right? And I'm going to explain that. The next one would be mourning over the sin of the world. Like we look out in the world and we're like, my goodness, look what's going on. Mourning over personal circumstances, not necessarily sin, but something just happened in your life and out of your, out of your control. And then mourning over the circumstances of the world. Again, these are not perfect categories, but I think we can see in the Bible that Jesus, what Jesus means when he says mourn in Matthew 5.4. So let's take them one at a time. Here's what it looks like to mourn in the kingdom of heaven. So what is your response to your sin, right? Like, newsflash, you're all sinners, every single one, including me. Point the finger. (laughs) So, if that's the case, what is your response to your sin? And I've already said that God does not bless sin, but the question is, how do you respond to your sin? If your response is indifferent, ah, I'm just going to move on. Do not expect God to bless or comfort you. However, God will bless your repentance to sin. Through grace and mercy, God indeed breaks in when you come with a heart of repentance. Let's go back to Matthew 5, 3, 2. Here are the words from John the Baptist proclaiming the arrival of Christ. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus repeats these words verbatim. Next chapter, Matthew 4, verse 17. Repent of what? Your sin. In the kingdom of heaven, Christians live with an awareness that repentance is always a moment away because of indwelling sin. And Christians need to mourn over their sin. Like, this first category hit home for me last week. So it's like pastoral confession time. Yay! But hopefully it helps make a point. Um, can't remember what day it was. feel like it was Wednesday. I got angry with my kids and uh, raised my voice. Pretty good. I, it was not a righteous anger at all. And how do I know the difference between you know, like a righteous anger and like, no, you're sinful? Right after that happened, conviction set in. It's like, pfft. I am not a model parent right now. And all you dads are nodding your head, you know that. So I had to repent before God, which I did. And I had to seek forgiveness from my children. So I did business with the Lord, and then I sat my kids down to explain my sin. I didn't even get into why I raised my voice. Take the log out of your own eye, Sean Powers, before take the speck 
out of your children's. So I asked for forgiveness, and I asked for my kids to forgive me. Now, did God comfort me in my repentance? Absolutely. Did God allow me to take a sinful situation and turn it into a gospel-focused moment with my children? Like, they're actually going to see forgiveness modeled by their dad. Yeah, God allowed that. And I'm grateful for that. And during that situation, there was a tremendous amount of comfort because of the grace and mercy of God. We read in the book of James, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Like, in the moment of sin, when you repent and turn to God, you are drawing near to God. You're like, ha, I'm making a beeline. I know what I did wrong. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, James isn't saying you should not laugh or have joy, right? He is saying do not be indifferent about your sin. You should not be joyful and laughing when you are engaged in sin. But draw near to God through repentance and you will find his comfort. You'll find that God comforts you immensely. Again, John Calvin says that we need to remember that God promises comfort for us, provided we seek him with tears and humility. When you mourn over sin, God comforts you with grace and mercy. Now, I need to distinguish worldly sorrow from godly repentance because there's too much worldly sorrow that leads to ongoing sin. Worldly sorrow happens when you know you have sinned, but you do not take actions against sin. It's the equivalent of saying, ah, man, I'm sorry, my bad, my bad, right? Godly repentance acknowledges sin, but takes action to change and conform to Christ. Godly repentance leads to godly mourning over sin. And here's the deal. When you find yourself taking steps of repentance and then mourning, God reminds you that you have been forgiven of your sin because of the blood of Christ. We just got to move ourselves into that direction and remind ourselves, man, I messed up, but you know what? Because of Jesus, I've been forgiven. So blessed are those who mourn over their sin for they shall be comforted by God. That was category one. It is also appropriate to mourn over the sin of society in the world, right? I have referred to society in the world as like the kingdom of the world, right? Here is an appeal from Martin Lloyd-Jones about the importance of mourning over sin that we see in society. He says this, and it's really well said. The man who is truly Christian, man or woman, is a man or woman who mourns also because of the sin of others. He does not stop at himself. He sees the same thing in others. Like, he's not being a hypocrite. What Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying, I know I'm a sinner, and man, I now see it in other people. And he's grieving over that. He is concerned about the state of society and the state of the world. And as he reads his newspaper or internet, 
He does not stop at what he sees or simply expresses, digest it, add it. He mourns because of it. Because men can spend their life in this world. He mourns because of the sins of others. Indeed, he goes beyond that and mourns over the state of the whole world as he sees the mortal muddle and unhappiness and suffering of mankind and reads of wars and rumors of wars. He sees that the whole world is in an unhealthy, unhappy condition. He knows that it is all due to sin, and he mourns because of it. Like the world is sick, and it needs Christ. There is wickedness in the kingdom of the world that should cause us to mourn. Here are only two examples of what we should be mourning over. The first is child trafficking, which is, I just kind of pulled to that, really felt make the point because they're so outrageous. Child trafficking. We should grieve over the sin of wicked people and systems enslaving children and women, specifically and in particular. We should mourn over that for their horrific purposes, right? What they're trying to do. We should mourn, weep, and cry out to God in prayer. The prophet Amos mourned over what was going on in Israel. As I read this passage, I want to remind you that this is what the kingdom of the world looks like. And Amos wrote this about 700 or 800 years before Christ. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. If I stopped right there, we'd be like, that is wicked. But it gets worse. And turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. Now tell me how that's not happening today and we should mourn. My child's going to tell me I raised my voice today. (laughs) But honestly, we aren't mourning enough over that issue. May we mourn and weep as God mourns and weeps. And may our mourning and weeping turn into righteous activism, right? We do not want to see children and women used as slaves. But here's the deal. It's hard for me to accept accept someone's activism if they truly are not mourning over this kind of wickedness. Here's another example. Here's another example of the sin of the world. This example hits home because of the, let's just say, the political climate of the world, and in particular America. We should mourn over the murder of unborn babies. We should mourn over the murder of unborn babies. Christians should mourn that in 1973, the United States Supreme Court greenlit the murder of unborn babies. Listen, I, I do, want, do not want to come across as like an angry evangelical from the 1980s. Like we want to leave that there because their messaging was pretty bad on some of these social issues that actually mean something to God. Not everyone, but some. But I do not endorse Christian activism that demonizes other people, right? 
However, I do not back off the principle that God hates the murder of unborn babies. You know, when you read the Bible, there's an overwhelming sense that God values the life of the innocent, in particular, children. God wants the wicked punished and the innocent protected. Like, let me put it this way. Does God mourn over the sinful murder of unborn babies? Absolutely. And we should mourn as well. So blessed are those who mourn over child trafficking and abortion, for they shall be comforted. Third category is mourning over personal um, tragedy, unforeseen circumstances. All of you have a story about mourning. All of you, every single one of you have a story about when the unexpected crashed upon your life. Like if I pulled out the whiteboard and I say, tell me about the time that this happened. It had nothing to do with sin. It just happened. Nothing to do with your sin. I mean, we'd be up here forever just writing all that down. You all have stories. And there would be tears because sometimes the grieving does not end. It doesn't stop. But I want to remind you that if you are a child of God, there is purpose in your pain. God sees the tears and knows your pain. He is your comfort as you mourn. Like I shared with you the words that I shared with Rob at the funeral of his granddaughter. So what gives me the right to say that God had Rob's personal circumstances in view? Blessed are you who mourn. Here's an excellent example of Jesus mourning and weeping over personal loss. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11, we read of a scene where Jesus receives word that Lazarus died. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. So it seems that Lazarus had a meaningful relationship with, with Jesus. I'll pick up the scene in chapter 11, verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Like you see the emotion there of Christ. Deeply troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus lost a friend. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The story continues to tell, tell us that Jesus was deeply moved. He goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus rises from the dead. Now, the story's main point is about the authority and power of Jesus Christ. That's like the main point. So let's not be confused. But we also see the deep love Jesus had for Mary, who lost a brother, and for Lazarus. Simply stated, Jesus mourned, and Jesus wept. He was broken. He was greatly troubled over the loss. So it is good and right to mourn the loss of a loved one. Absolutely. It is good and right to mourn and weep when tragedy strikes. And when we mourn and weep, God breaks in with his comfort. God meets us in our needs. He meets us in our darkest hours. You've been there. 
I know you have. And God breaks in. He's right there with you. So, blessed are those who mourn when tragedy strikes, for they shall be comforted by God. One more category. It's the last one about how we can appropriately mourn. Trying to make sense again of Matthew 5, 4. And I'll only make a few comments about this last category. We can mourn over the circumstances of the world, like generally speaking. Without getting into all the history and the politics, we can mourn about what is going on between Russia and Ukraine. Right? We obviously don't know all the information. We don't know all the facts. What we do know, what our instincts tell us pretty clearly, it's not good. And people are dying. Ukrainians are having church in a subway because bombs are falling on their homes and on their streets. And we can rightly mourn over the evil that comes with war. What precedent do we have for mourning over the circumstances of the world? Well, in Genesis 18, Abraham pleads with God several times to spare the city of Sodom. In the Gospel of Luke and Matthew, we read that Jesus weeps several times over the city of Jerusalem. Why does Jesus weep? Because he knows what the people had done to the prophets in the past, and he knows what the people in Jerusalem are going to do to him. And so he weeps. Every time you turn on the news, you see the effects of sin, and you can appropriately mourn. You can call out to God for mercy. And frankly, that is a prayer right now for all the people stuck in Ukraine. Oh God, have mercy. Have mercy on them. Your heart does not need to be troubled when we see the tragedy in the world because God can bring you comfort. He brings comfort to the mourning heart. The mourning heart. So blessed are those who mourn over the conflict in Ukraine as an example, for they shall be comforted. I have one final point to make about Matthew 5.4. I want to show how God comforts his people in the present and then in the future. Yes, we need to turn our minds and our hearts to Christ, but it seems, it seems to me, there is more to say about receiving comfort from God in Holy Scripture. I want to first look at 2 Corinthians to explain a way God comforts his people in the present right now, and then we're going to end by looking at the book of Revelation. Here's 2 Corinthians 1, 3, 4. And as you read this and as I say it, Think about the implications this has on a local church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and a God of all comfort, who comforts us in, in our affliction so that we, so that you, may be able to comfort others who are in affliction with the comfort for which we ourselves are comforted by God. When God comforts you in your mourning and grieving, in a way, you're being equipped to someday comfort others. There's something, go, there's something about going through the hard knocks of life that allows you to help others when time allows and it's appropriate. Like This is why the local church is so important. We need each other when life goes sideways. And when you're not going through the trials of life, you need to make yourself available to comfort other people who are going through grieving and mourning. 
this local church, our local church, right? Redemption Church needs to be the safest place for a person to mourn and grieve, right? Like we want to be that place. It's in the local church where people are encouraged to mourn. Like you've gone through a hard day. Is life bad? Did that thing happen? Yes, please come mourn and grieve. Be comforted by God and may the people of God be a mechanism to bring comfort, right? May we be that church. So in the present, in the present right now, God wants to use you, Christian, to comfort those who are grieving. But as I said, we also look to a future comfort. God has equipped his people in the present, but we also look to a future hope that provides comfort for those who mourn. What a glorious passage from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, like, I'm already getting excited about that prospect. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Man, that's a great line. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We, brothers and sisters in Christ, have a great future. We have a hope. There will be a day when there will be no more mourning. There will be a day when the total weight of God's comfort will be on display. But until that day, Matthew 5, 4 is a tremendous comfort. Tremendous. So blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted by God. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.